0: So, here's what I don't get, Jay. Is this about the swimsuits again? Cause I'm telling you, Miles, unstable molecules are really the only feasible explanation for like 90% of the clothes in superhero comics. Well, that
1: too. But no, I, I was talking about Rachel Summers.
0: Oh, well, she's definitely responsible for at least part of the remaining 10%. Mostly the spiky parts, I think.
1: Okay, but here's the thing. If she jumped into the time stream after Scott and Jean's wedding, and serviced in the future where she became Mother Ascani, who's the Rachel who's running around the Marvel present now?
0: Where does she fit into the timeline? Bold of you to assume that a Summer's kid fits into any timeline. Okay, fair. But still, how can she be
1: back in the present? Did she come back from the future again, cable-style? Not
0: the Rachel who went to the Ascani future, no. Is there more than one? Kind of. See, when Cable prevented the ascension of Apocalypse in the Twelve... That was the time Apocalypse possessed Cyclops, right? Right. Anyway, that split the timeline because it basically precluded the Ascani future, which took place after the rise of Apocalypse.
1: Okay, but that doesn't erase the timeline, right?
0: No, but see, the time stream is... But it's not linear exactly, but because of how it works, Rachel was technically still within the time stream itself when that happened. So, while there is a version of her who's arguably the same person who landed in Cable's timeline and became Mother Ascani, there's also a version of her who, again, is arguably the same person as that version, sort of, who couldn't have gone to that future because it didn't exist.
1: Huh. And that's the one who ended up back in the present. Indirectly, yes. So she just, what, swam
0: back? Can you do that? Kinda. But no, she washed up at the very end of time, where Gaunt took her prisoner. Gaunt? It's a future cyborg despot. It was eventually taken down by a consortium of planets and sentenced to live alone forever on the Dead Earth at the end of the Consolidated Timeline where it didn't blow up.
1: Consolidated Timeline?
0: Yeah, apparently all of them merge back together after a point.
1: Okay, okay. What did Gaunt want with Rachel? Nothing with
0: her specifically. He was just using her as bait for Cable. To break him out of his prison? To join him for a bracing round of fisticuffs. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here... To explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 257 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And I don't know, I don't think we've mentioned so far, we are going to be at FlameCon in just a few weeks, and we very much hope you'll come join us. We are not going to be tabling most of the weekend, but we are doing a live show on Saturday. And again, we'd love to see you there.
1: Yeah, FlameCon was amazing last year, and Jay, I know you were there the year before that as well, so I'm really looking forward to this year, even if it's going to be
0: abbreviated. Well, I'm deeply biased because I'm on the programming committee now, but um, I think it's going to be pretty spectacular.
1: Yes, so uh, please come on and uh, see us talk about X-Men in front of you,
0: in person. It'll be great. Yeah, I think we're also going to have a table for merch like for part of the day on Saturday. I'm still not quite sure how that's going to work. Presumably, I will be sure by the time this episode airs. But um, now in past, what will by then be past Jay needs to check a couple of things.
1: In the words of my maternal grandmother, I can only say mysterious.
0: Not those things.
1: Probably not those things. But speaking of, I don't know, things, today we are going to talk about Rachel Summers. We are going to talk about Phoenix and about dark futures.
0: Specifically, we're going to talk about the one of Rachel's futures that we didn't cover in the cold open.
1: Yeah, this one is significantly more straightforward and was also revealed significantly sooner.
0: Yeah, that one, if you want, you can go and read about in Cable 85 and 86, I believe.
1: Whereas the story we're covering today is the X-Men Phoenix miniseries, although I kind of prefer to call it the title of the story itself, which is Ascani Rising.
0: That makes a lot more sense to me, because it's much, much more about the rise of the Ascani clan than it is about the Phoenix Force, although I will say the Phoenix Force plays a pretty significant role in it.
1: It does. It's, you know, cawing and eating worms and making a nest up in a tree with Warren Worthington III. Attacking its own reflection. Like you do. Oh man, if the Phoenix Force got confused by a mirror and attacked its own reflection, I feel like it would wipe out half the life in the universe.
0: That seems reasonably probable, yes.
1: Okay, so, pro tip, if you're ever around the Phoenix Force, keep it far away from mirrors just to be on the safe side.
0: Also, make sure to tell it it's a pretty bird. Mm-hmm.
1: And if you want it to go to sleep, just put, like, a blanket over its cage, and it'll think it's night.
0: Aw, I love the idea that that's how you you subdue the Phoenix, is you just sort of put something over its head.
1: I feel like the Asgard-Shiar War would have been significantly uh, less catastrophic had Thor just tried that. I mean, it would have been differently catastrophic. Well, that may be true. Anyway, this is a miniseries that came out in 1999. But given that just what happens to Rachel directly after she enters the time stream in Excalibur number 75, which we just covered, we figured we would talk about it today. Hey... We get to skip around, because it's our
0: podcast. Damn right. So, for those folks, for those poor benighted souls just joining us now, who are going to be maybe slightly less confused than usual, or at least only about as confused as the rest of our listeners on this one, let's talk about Rachel Summers and sort of give a brief recap of, of what's going on here, who she is, and why we should care. Rachel Summers is the daughter of Cyclops and Jean Grey but
1: from a different, darker timeline than the regular Marvel Universe timeline.
0: Specifically, Rachel is from Earth-A-11. That's the Days of Future Past timeline. It's a dark, near future where mutants are imprisoned and hunted both by giant robot sentinels and by enslaved fellow mutants called hounds under a piratey-looking dude named Ahab.
1: Rachel was a hound herself for a while, but eventually escaped to travel back in time to the present day to try to fix the timeline and prevent her dark future, Days of Future Past, from ever happening.
0: But in the main timeline, she found a world where her mother had seemingly died before Rachel could even be born, so she claimed what was left of the Phoenix Force to carry on Jean's legacy.
1: That worked out pretty well for a while, as she joined first the X-Men, and then after getting stabbed by Wolverine, long story, Excalibur.
0: Until, after some additional time travel that freed her home timeline from the t- Sentinels and Houndmaster, her teammate Captain Britain was lost between issues in the time stream on the trip back. Thanks to
1: some temporo-mystical shenanigans that we, frankly, don't fully understand.
0: Although, arguably, the people who wrote them don't really understand them much better than we do.
1: Rachel traded places
0: with Captain Britain. That sent him and his brand new time mullet to the present day of the main timeline, but catapulted Rachel into who knew where and when. And as for who knew, the answer is we know, and, um, as for when, this miniseries.
1: So let's start off with X-Men Phoenix number one, Ascani Rising, part one. Written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Pascal Alix, inked by John Zopp, Scott Elmer, Mark McKenna, and Larry Stucker, and colored by Gloria Vasquez.
0: That is a lot of inkers.
1: It is. Although I have to say, for an issue that was presumably very rushed and thus required a lot of inkers, the art holds together pretty well. Pascal Alix is not an artist with whom I was very familiar, but I looked him up, and he apparently did the Marvel-illustrated version of Moby Dick, as opposed to the classics-illustrated version of Moby Dick that Bilsenkevich did. Pascal Alix also did the main story in X-Men Red Annual Number 1 much more recently, which I thought was pretty swell.
0: Oh, hey, that's really cool.
1: As for the writer, John Francis Moore, you may be familiar with him from X-Men 2099 and Doom 2099. He's also going to write X-Force for quite a while coming up, from number 63 to number 100. And I like him overall. I like his style.
0: Yeah, I like this miniseries a lot, actually. I went in with vague and dull memories of it. Um, Mostly, I remembered skimming through it and just not finding it interesting. And This time through, I actually really dug it, especially some some details that are going to come up in the second issue and onward.
1: So, for me, I ended up liking it as well, but only on my second read-through. I had not read X-Men Phoenix before we were preparing for this episode. And my first time through, when I just read the comic and don't take notes at all— I actually was super bored by it. It wasn't until I started looking at the details and trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about that I realized there's actually a lot more substance to this miniseries than I think was evident on that initial quick read.
0: Yeah, there's a ton here, and it's really, really cool. And I'm really glad that we're actually going to have the chance to unpack it a little bit.
1: But before we can unpack anything, we would be remiss if we didn't start with what we as readers started with, the opening narration, the gloriously purple, excessive opening narration that I love so well.
0: The future. In the arid wasteland that was once a mighty ocean gulf, time and space are sundered by unimaginable forces, which open a passageway between our Earth in an extra-temporal void. Across that rift, a lost and forgotten soul is hurled, returned to the reality she had given up 2,000 years earlier in order to save a friend's life. Sadly, nothing of her former life remains. The world in which she lived, loved, and fought no longer exists. Now she returns alone the ghost of a long dead past.
1: I really love that we only need like three words from that intro, and yet they're all there. I really love just the textural painting we are being given by that opening narration.
0: So, how far into the future has she come? She has come 2,000
1: years forward. She has come to Earth 4935, the future that cable comes from, the future run by Apocalypse. And we find out very quickly, Rachel didn't just zap from 1994 to 3994 or whenever it is. She remembers all of that time. She had to sit through those 2,000 years in the time stream. So she's not doing so hot here. And that, I don't know. Honestly, the fact that she's like even remotely coherent for the entire rest of her life is pretty impressive. 2,000 years? If I'm alone for like two hours, I get bored and start to go stir-crazy.
0: Well, she had the Phoenix Force with her for a lot of that time. Actually, for all of that time, this this Rachel has, has the Phoenix Force the whole time. The other Rachel who ended up at the end of the time the Phoenix Force got bored and split partway through.
1: Well, that's fair enough. So I guess this one, you know, they could play, I don't know, Never Have I Ever, or I'm going on a vacation and I'm bringing something that starts with A, or they could just reminisce about how great Alistair Stewart's butt is or how much they want to make out with Kitty Pride. They could pass the time.
0: My general sense of Rachel's relationship to the Phoenix especially in context of this series, is that it's much more of a gestalt state by this point. That who she is and how she relates to mortality, humanity, and in this case also time, has changed significantly by her attachment to the Phoenix.
1: That makes sense, yeah. And especially because the consciousness of the Phoenix Force, as listeners may remember, left in Excalibur number 50. It basically left Rachel with its power and the version of itself that she defined, but it was no longer a fully separate entity the way it was before.
0: Yeah, the phoenix basically is Rachel or is part of Rachel, and as we're going to see, the Rachel who's here is no longer quite mortal and no longer quite human in the ways that she was before. But we're getting ahead of ourselves.
1: So the other Rachel, uh, the one that gets kidnapped by Gaunt, she'll eventually no longer be quite human because in a Chris Claremont story, she'll turn into a
0: dinosaur! I think that's probably a better fate, or at least a more awesome one.
1: Yeah, only briefly, though. And then she just gets kind of a dumb costume that I'm not really a big fan of and isn't written very well for a long time. But what can you do? Become a dinosaur, clearly. maybe she should have stayed a dinosaur. So, as this non-dinosaur version of Rachel Summers emerges in the dusty, critter-filled future, a bunch of soldiers come to investigate this temporal anomaly— And Rachel Summers, still very disoriented, Phoenix forces them all to death. But before they die, I do want to talk a little bit about their design. Well, I mean, they don't really die, they're fictional characters. But let's talk about the design they had before they were incinerated, is what I mean. It's very, very Earth-4935. It's very much what we've seen from this far future in previous stories, especially The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Their armor is, it's both functional and ornamental. It's like streamlined, but it's got lots and lots of little fiddly bits on it. And I do love that there's such a distinctive look to this period in this timeline.
0: This timeline and this time period have what I think of as a very, very, very Star Wars aesthetic.
1: Oh yeah, you're right, because it's futuristic, but it's also all quite used and lived in and universally filthy.
0: Well, and in fact, this miniseries in particular, and I, I don't know if it made it into my notes, but I kept on thinking throughout it that it feels like a Star Wars story.
1: And I do think that Alex and the Assorted Inkers' art works very well in that direction. It's sort of like halfway between Chris Bachalo's more cartoony, incredibly exaggerated work and Gene Ha's stark and harsh, but also slightly exaggerated work from The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. And yeah, that feels like Star Wars. It's like the world, but a little bit more so. But there is an entire world outside of Rachel annihilating random dudes on funny fancy motorcycles, so let's go ahead to Crest Coast, which is the city around Apocalypse's Citadel. Apocalypse, of course, being the immortal blue lift despot who runs the entire world
0: at this point. But has weirdly functional HR. Actually, he might not anymore because right now, um, his his realm is basically being run by a woman named High Counselor Diamanda Nero, who is. At when we meet her, torturing the last of the Xavier Collective, um, a rebellion to death, um, which allows her to add his powers to her collection. I think she gets the powers of everyone she murders directly.
1: That is a very appropriate power set for somebody who lives in Apocalypse's dark future. That pretty much uh, fits well with his philosophy. It really does, Yeah. Also, High Counselor
0: Diamanda Nero. That is a great goddamn name. It's, it's fun, and it's not subtle. Speaking of things that aren't subtle, in addition to a, a taste for life and powers, she is, is a prime chewer of scenery. Don't fight it. In another minute, you won't feel a
1: thing. Ever again. But I won't leave you. Death is the most intimate moment you can share with another.
0: What about washing someone's hair?
1: I mean, that's like the second most intimate. I don't know. Uh, A lot of people are bald in this dark future, so maybe people don't talk about that as much.
0: Okay, look, if you're asking me to choose between believing Diamond De Niro and Charles Boyle, I'm probably going to go with Charles Boyle.
1: He's a lot less murderous, so I'm in favor. Speaking of hair... Nero has some. It is bright pink, and it matches her bright pink, I guess you could call it an outfit. She's got these thigh-high boots and these elbow-length gloves, but aside from that, she's mostly just wearing these complicated straps and little panels. And normally, I would be annoyed by this over-the-top sexualized outfit, but this is a character who, from her very first line, we see as an extremely sexual character.
0: I think it also helps that Part of the byproduct of the art style of this comic is that nobody is sexy. That's true, yeah. There's a a little bit of that that beautiful
1: ugliness that Frank Quitely does. Not the same way Frank Quitely does, mind you.
0: it's grotesquerie.
1: Yeah, and it works well. But, I don't know, I, I like it. She's a hedonist, she's a sadistic hedonist who enjoys manipulating people and having an effect on them. So, hey, be as sexy as you want, scary villain lady.
0: Okay, while we're talking about her look and before we go forward with her, we need to talk about her facial tattoo because this is a weird feature and it's one that really bothers me. She has what very specifically appears to be a sacred Maori chin tattoo. These are called moko kauae and um they are they are specific to Maori women; these are the indigenous population of New Zealand. And as far as I know, neither the character nor any of the creators who worked on this comic are Maori, and that makes the use of of that particular um, tattoo really, 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 really inappropriate for all of the reasons that you'd standardly avoid. Cultural appropriation, but also and specifically in this context, because of the impact of of um, colonizers and specifically European colonizers on the existence of that those tattoos, because they were and this is this is in the nineteenth century. This is much more recently than you think if you were thinking about this from the from an American perspective, for instance were collecting heads of indigenous peoples based on what they thought were cool tattoos. Yikes. So this is not imagery that you appropriate, and this is really not imagery that you pull in to use on your genocidal villain.
1: Yeah, very, very true, especially since there seems to be a very colonial feel to the way that the dominant mutant class interacts with the subjugated human class in this future.
0: Unquestionably. Huh.
1: Well, that's deeply unfortunate, and now I'm sad, but uh, I'm glad I know it, because knowledge is important. But also sad.
0: It also is drawn carelessly and changes form over the several issues it appears in, and basically I just have massive, massive problems with this.
1: Legit. Well, we do learn some other things about Diamanda and Nero that are uh, less uncomfortable, if still perhaps uncomfortable. Number one... Nero is assisted by two prelates named Shaver and Luminesca. And hey, we know Shaver, he's a major character in the Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries which takes place a number of years after this.
0: Specifically, in in the future, Shaver is going to become the right-hand man of Apocalypse who is tasked with the dubious honor of helping to raise Strife.
1: That's no fun at all. The other half of the duo, Luminesca, Chavere's sister, she's this rad-bald lady who just seems to really enjoy life. The fact that she doesn't show up in a miniseries that takes place later probably doesn't bode ill for her fate at all.
0: I mean, rad in a of apocalypse kind of way, and enjoy life when said life mostly involves the subjugation of the masses. But, okay? I mean, do what you love, you never work a day in your life, I guess.
1: Now... Apocalypse, at this point in time, is preparing to move his consciousness to a new body, which is a topic we've certainly seen before in the Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries. So, as he's doing this complicated ritual, I don't know, maybe at this point in the timeline it was more complicated, because it seems to take him a couple years, de Nero is essentially running his entire empire. And given that we've seen her as a sadistic, self-centered despot, that's not great. I mean, Apocalypse is pretty terrible too, but Nero is... I don't know, maybe worse? Like, at least Apocalypse has a set of principles, even if they're shitty principles.
0: I feel like Apocalypse would be really into her eating live snakes, though. He'd be like, yes, this is the future I envisioned.
1: Maybe someday she'll dine on a tree frog. Maybe that's too deep a cut, but we'll keep it. What's it taste like? I want to eat it. Rachel, meanwhile, has been in this dark future for a few months at this point after emerging from the time stream and blowing a bunch of dudes up. And she's now gotten more of the lay of this awful land, but she's still alone. I do love her appearance, though. Jay, what you were saying about Star Wars is very much the case here. She's got much longer Mm -hmm. hair, and she has this awesome tan leather bodysuit and a blue cloak and goggles. She's like a Star Wars version of the Virgin Mary look that Jean Grey had in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. And I really do love that little subtle nod to continuity, in addition to just the design in general.
0: Yeah, no, if this, if specifically, if this were a Star Wars comic, she would be probably set up as the initial protagonist. But the protagonist that this, this, that would, who would be introduced and who would carry the remainder of the series, or at least the next film, is one who we are just about to meet now. So
1: Rachel heads into Crest Coast for Apocalypse's Festival of Resurrection. It's a grand holiday while he's hopping bodies. When Rachel was in Ahab's dystopian future, Days of Future Past, she always dreamed of a world where mutants reigned supreme, but now she sees one, especially here around the Festival of Resurrection where mutants even more visibly dominate.
0: Not only that, but the definition of mutants is incredibly, incredibly narrow. One of the things she does very early on is save A young kid who appears initially to be a mutant and may in fact be he possesses at least some latent psionic ability from a cyborg garden. This, as we'll learn, is a very, very young blacksmith.
1: Blacksmith, of course, is the bug-eyed mentor that Cable will have later, and here he's like a teenager. He's adorable.
0: Is he a teenager? I feel like he's—he's—he might even be in still still be in his moppet stage of evolution.
1: I'm not sure. I mean, he's got some genetic stuff going on that makes a lot about his uh, physical well being difficult to determine.
0: Well, he's 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 mopety. He's still really enthusiastic. He's very young. He's called a child frequently, but you know that that's that's a questionable classification in this world and in comics in general.
1: So, after saving Blacksmith and then saying that no, he can't come with her, he'll have to wait until issue number two to show up again.
0: He specifically wants to be her Jedi apprentice and learn to to harness his psionic powers under her tutelage.
1: If he had any hair, he would probably make sure to get a little rat tail behind one of his ears. But Rachel won't have any of this. Instead, she continues to head into the festival using a fake ID. And we learn that her name in this future is... Alizerton Somerset. So yeah, good call, Rachel. Choosing a very common name so that nobody checks whether you're really twenty one and they'll let you into the bar.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I love all the variations on Summers that everyone ends up with.
1: I know, right? Also, how do you pronounce that? It's A L Y Z R apostrophe N. Alizerton. Alizern.
0: I'm, I assume. You... Alizern. Alizern. Alizern.
1: I guess so. Well, we won't have to say it too much more, because she mostly doesn't use it. But as she does make it to Apocalypse's sarcophagus, planning to kill him in the middle of his resurrection process, just like that scene from Dracula, where Jonathan Harker was going to kill Dracula in his coffin, and it was so scary that I had to hide the book behind my bookshelf for two years, kind of like that. In this case, though, just like in Dracula, come to think of it, the sarcophagus is empty, Apparently, this was just a decoy in case anybody tried to do exactly what Rachel is trying to
0: do. Is Apocalypse actually out seducing, um, Lucy Wisterna? Uh,
1: probably. I, I only assume so. But the person who's here instead is Diamanda, Nero, just waiting for somebody to try something. And she uses one of her many, many powers to poison the living hell out of Rachel Summers. And Rachel, despite having the Phoenix Force, is so damaged by this that she just barely makes it out. She just barely survives, and Nero is just fine.
0: Meanwhile, there's someone waiting for her when she emerges from the sewers, and that is a man named Diogenes Chang.
1: He and his disapproving eyebrows are waiting. He's got seriously really great eyebrows and mutton chops to match. It's like if Peter Capaldi didn't even stop at the eyebrows, he just kept going and looked just as angry with his sideburns.
0: Diogenes Chang is a member of something called the Order of Witnesses. They're like a terrestrial version of the Watchers. They're sworn to watch and to record, but not interfere.
1: And this Order of Witnesses sent Diogenes Chang to keep this newly returned prophesized member of the first bloodline, Rachel Summers, or sorry, Alizern Somerset, safe from harm so that she could later fulfill her destiny of welcoming the pure blood who will later come through. Essentially, the Order of the Witnesses—and if you remember that name, it's because we see some of those in Bishop's Dark Future much earlier in the timeline—their entire reason for existing is to make sure Cable happens—
0: there are... yeah, a whole lot of future society is organized around anticipating Cable.
1: Yeah, yeah, seriously. I'd feel really awkward if I were him, I'd be second-guessing every decision I make, which I guess he probably did for a long time before he just decided to shoot everything instead.
0: Well, and then he goes back to second-guessing after he's, he's uh, prevented the dark future. That's actually sort of the point where he is when the alternate timeline, other place that Rachel landed stuff happens.
1: Eh, shoot first, second guess later. That makes sense. And that brings us to X-Men Phoenix number two, Ascani Rising part two, which gets its very own additional subtitle, Contagion.
0: And here we've got the same creative team as number one, with one exception, Scott Elmer. Uh, Inker Scott Elmer is not joining us this issue. And Jay, you mentioned that you were not a fan of this cover. Would you like to describe it? The cover is very bad, and it looks like it was drawn by a middle school student. It's Rachel back-to-back... With Nero looking like their buddy cops, which they're definitely not, but it's it's also just it's not good. It's got absolutely no energy to it. The anatomy and just the, the, the art is, is is really bland. It's really not reflective of any of, of what's good about what's inside. I'm I yeah, it's it's just a bad cover. Like there's there's just not really anything that I like about it.
1: Hmm. Better than I could have done in middle school.
0: Yeah, but Marvel wasn't paying you. Yeah, I wish they had been, though. So,
1: Rachel has learned after her disastrous fight with Nero that it's
0: dangerous to go alone, and she now has a posse. That's right, she has assembled a crack team of awesome badasses. She's got Malachi Hark, this is a rad horse-looking dude who I assume must be distantly descended from Max Rocker of Beauty and the Beast. I haven't thought about Max Rocker for ages! Jay, thank you for reminding me about Max
1: Rocker. Anytime. He lives on in all of our hearts. We also have Kwa, an Atlantean elemental and one of the last of the Atlanteans.
0: Lexi, who is the final surviving member of a clone sisterhood bred as warriors and wiped out by Apocalypse.
1: And Ozana, a Gibson Sterling Mark-9
0: warbot programmed for extreme combat. So I legitimately and profoundly and unironically love this group of characters. They are really, really cool, and they're incredibly, incredibly evocative. Like, you see just enough of them to get the sense that they've got fleshed-out histories, and they've got a lot of self, and they've got history as a group, too. Like, I would absolutely read the origin story of this group, or I would read the ongoing featuring their adventures. But I really
1: like that we don't get to learn much about them, partially because, like you said, Jade, implies a lot of their own personal history, but also just how disparate and how strange they all are implies that there's a lot about this setting we don't know about. It really speaks to a much larger world around the characters that we're focusing on.
0: You mentioned that they're disparate and strange, and that's reflected in the name that they've given themselves as well, which is Ascani, and that is that is gutter speak for outsiders.
1: And in fact, we find out in another story from this timeline, I think it might have been The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, one of those, that Rachel so. that Rachel chose the name Ascani because it was the closest she could come up with in this future language to X-Men.
0: So that's a remarkably lucky
1: coincidence. Yup. But now, the... Good guys are blowing up a place called the Hellhole, which is like a conscript run geothermal power plant that powers most of North America and runs on,
0: unsurprisingly,
1: non-mutant slaves.
0: And one of those conscripts, one of the folks who is is laboring in the Hellhole, just so happens to be Blacksmith. Right, the bug-eyed kid that Rachel saved in issue number one. So, Jay, you mentioned
1: this briefly, but his deal is that he gene-scanned as genetically defective rather than as having the X-factor gene. So even though he's mutated, he's not a mutant, hence him being in the underclass. But he was able to see then and see now Rachel's immense psionic aura. So he actually refers to her as Bright Lady, one of the epithets that Mother Ascani will later go by— It's important to remember, though, that when Storm invokes the Bright Lady, that's an entirely different Bright Lady in the Marvel Universe. That is a goddess called Ashtur, who has favored Aurora's bloodline, given them white hair and blue eyes, and a predilection for sorcery. So, Ashtur is one Bright Lady, Rachel Summers is another Bright Lady, no relation, but I like to think that they get together for bridge every Sunday.
0: Seems reasonable. Now, this mission is not going very well for the fledgling Clan Ascani. They are... And they're attacked by guards who managed to damage Ozana, but they're in luck because again, Blacksmith is there and Blacksmith is adorably overjoyed at the chance to see a Gibson Sterling Mark nine for real. Not only that, but he knows enough about her. He is enough of a mechanic um, that he's able to convince them that he can fix her and they should take him along. And so they do. Blacksmith has joined the party. Meanwhile, back at Stately Apocalypse
1: Manor, Diamante Nero is very happy about a recent weapons test that the bad guys have done to, you know, make the dark future a little bit darker since everyone's gotten all complacent since the mutants are in charge and nothing fixes that like killing a bunch of them.
0: This is specifically of a biological weapon that Apocalypse told Nero about before he last went into stasis, that he was really excited about introducing as part of his new plan.
1: His new plan to make sure that people don't get too comfortable, because when they're comfortable, they don't get to be strong, and when they're not strong, they don't survive. So Nero's like, hey, let's party. Uh, Luminesca, Chaver, how about you come back to my chambers to uh, celebrate? Which, I gotta say commanding your sibling underlings to come back to your place for hanky-panky certainly gets across the whole, like, corrupt, creepy decadence thing that they really seem to be going for with Nero, as does her name being
0: Nero. Okay, you don't know that that's what she's inviting them back for. They They might just go play Mario Kart.
1: I mean, that's significantly less creepy, so let's go with that. It's probably on, like, Mario Kart, I don't know, 245 by this point in the timeline.
0: Mario Kart, but somehow actual people get killed in the process. Yeah,
1: probably that. Now, Nero has this weapon, I believe, or is it a different weapon? Anyway, one of Apocalypse's weapons in isolation. This is a living plague built from a mutant.
0: Yeah, um, this is bad news. And Luminesca, in context of all of this, does what neither of the siblings has done before, and that is to question Nero. It becomes clearer after Nero dismisses them in disgust that Luminesca thinks Nero is actively trying to usurp Apocalypse's place. chaver on the other hand, thinks they need to t- keep their heads down and be good prelates, and that, chaver is how you end up stuck babysitting Strife when you're like 200 years old. Right.
1: Now... Diogenes wants to interfere with this whole mess despite being sworn to only Witness as a member of the Order of Witnesses, but he can't. He is, however, pretty sure that Rachel is the prophesized figure that the Order of Witnesses has been waiting for. They agree, but they're like, it's really a shame she has to die, just like Guar in Empire Records.
0: Oh yeah, man, I remember that. And that prophesied death, um, Rachel's not, not, the one in Empire Records is coming closer and closer because at a scavenger colony, the plague, this is the, the weaponized individual who was in Nero's chambers, has been released for a test run. Everyone is dead. And not only are all the locals dead, but Qua comes back infected. She thought she was immune. She got too close to the contagion and she dies at Rachel's feet.
1: Yeah, and so Clan Ascani's investigation is going very poorly, even more poorly, when Shaver and Luminesca, sent by Nero, show up to try to murder everyone.
0: That's right, this is a trap for Clan Ascani, but as it turns out, it's also a trap for Shaver and Luminesca, because Nero now sees them as threats to her power and she has rigged the valley with explosive charges to trap them.
1: So it's time for a brief circumstantial hero-villain team-up.
0: Now, Luminesca thinks she can chop, she can change the plague, she can render it inert using her powers, but she only manages to change its direction from heading away from to heading towards the heroes, which means it ends up in her face first and she immediately dies.
1: Rachel says, "Oh shit, I've lost an ally, I've lost an enemy, nobody else has to die. Everybody, run away and escape, I am going to take this motherfucker on myself.
0: Yeah, and I this is this is again one of those bits where we just get so much cool moments of characterization from her allies. But um Rachel unleashes the Phoenix Force and she manages to take out the plague, but she contracts it herself in the process and she dies for real before being spectacularly revived with a Phoenix flare. This is something I don't think we've actually seen the Phoenix Force do before. We've seen it heal people who are very close to death. We've seen it apparently resurrect someone, but not actually. I don't think we've ever seen it actually resurrect someone from actual death before, which is definitely what happens here.
1: The closest I can think of is after Rachel Summers fights Necrom and the Phoenix Force reconstructs her body from scratch. But it's implied at least that her mind was somehow still intact. There was still something to build that body around.
0: I mean, her mind re- remains intact here as well. But it's more explicit that she's died. Like, I, I, the, that felt like a very different situation to this one, because this one, that one was very much repelled by the Phoenix Force. She was very much not conscious for that. She was effectively out for the count. And here, Rachel is definitely the one at the steering wheel.
1: Yeah. And part of how we see that is what Rachel herself sees during her death and rebirth. She sees all these different versions of herself, from versions who are in the womb with umbilical cords to the young Rachel that came to Earth-616 for the first time to the old Mother Ascani we saw in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, and they all basically tell her and convince her, hey, you're here for a reason. You popped out of the time stream in this specific period for a reason. These prophecies are real. And this works for me because... Everybody remembers Rachel Summers as a telepath and telekinetic or as the host of the Phoenix Force, but her actual central mutant powers are that she can interact with the time stream. And so for her to be talking to future and past version of herself, that actually makes a lot of sense here. And I appreciate that the way Rachel's resurrected is specific to her.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I think, I think honestly, this resurrection works extremely well. Again, one of the things I love about Rachel as a Phoenix host and about her relationship to the Phoenix is that it's so much more personal and it's so much more driven by who she is.
1: Completely. So Rachel dies but gets better and after doing so says, hey, Chavert, your sister got killed because you got betrayed by your boss. You want to join up? And Chavert says, nah, I think I'd rather go babysit Strife years in the future. And so he's gone. Chavert makes bad life choices. Nero herself, meanwhile, as all of the heroes have been getting beaten on by a living plague, has gone back to Ascani HQ to kidnap Diogenes Chang and his squire, whose name is Squire, but spelled funny. With some apostrophes. And that brings us to X-Men Phoenix number three, Ascani Rising, conclusion, sacrifice. Conclusion or sacrifice? I mean, it's the conclusion of Ascani Rising, and the conclusion is called sacrifice.
0: Alright, fair enough.
1: I feel like there's a Lewis Carroll bit that sounds a whole lot like that, but we don't have time for that because we're going to talk about different creators than Lewis Carroll, namely, John Francis Moore, who wrote this thing, Pascal Alix and Alan Evans, who penciled it, John Zopp, Al Milgram, and Andrew Pipoy, who inked it, and Gloria Vasquez and Atomic Paintbrush, who colored it. Those are the longest credits yet.
0: Yeah, we are, I believe, up to, let's see, six inkers on this series.
1: Hmm. I mean, it's a rite of passage. You don't really uh, get anywhere in Marvel until you've inked X-Men Phoenix. I I guess not. So, Nero, indeed, has captured Diogenes Chang and Squire and has been torturing information out of them, and also just torturing them because she's a horrible sadist. She still has Chang, but she left Squire at Ascani HQ as an example, and Rachel finds him— And he dies, but as he does, she uses her telepathy and just her compassion, her empathy in general, to give him a vision of home, a vision of comfort, a vision of safety that he's probably never felt in this dark future. She shows him Muir Isle.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. That's a place that she specifically was very late in her time on on present Earth.
1: Exactly, and she was only there briefly... But it makes sense. I mean, the lighthouse that Excalibur was in was too unstable to ever really be a home. It wasn't until she sort of came to terms with herself after all of the crap she went through and was on Muir Isle, I think that she ever really felt like she just got to be a person, even if she was just there for maybe only weeks.
0: Now, it strikes me here, and especially in context of this and how she reacts to it, that this is a Rachel who is much, much more measured and self-possessed than we've ever seen her.
1: I think it very much is, yeah. And we're starting to see her mature into the Mother Ascani. It's a pretty smooth line there.
0: Well, into the Mother Ascani, and with the reminder that the Mother Ascani is a religious figure and a community leader, but she's also basically spent centuries leading this universe's equivalent of the X-Men. She is a revolutionary leader, and she's begun to think strategically like one. She's not the same kid who wanted to take down the entire universe just to get back at the Beyonder.
1: Oh, God, I'd almost forgotten about that. Well, what Rachel finds out here from The Dying Squire is that Nero is planning to, first, before she kills the Ascani, kill the Order of Witnesses, her other enemies. So, the good guys get into a plane that Blacksmith rebuilds, and they fly out to stop her. And I really love this image. It's just this vast, almost empty panel with just clear blue sky and simple natural landscape features. This is a series that's always been very dense, very full of stuff and fiddly bits, most of which are filthy or horrible. And so it's a nice little reminder that, oh, nature still exists in this world. The world hasn't been completely taken by apocalypse. It's a nice moment of visual hope.
0: Well... A lot of the world has been taken by Apocalypse, and whether nature has might be arguable, because one of my favorite panels um, takes place when they get to Antarctica, and it qualifies that that um, Apocalypse's reach mostly doesn't extend to Antarctica, or doesn't extend as thoroughly to Antarctica. But there are a couple penguins front and center in the panel, which to me conveys, you know, vaguely implies that the penguins are working for Apocalypse. Oh man, do you think these are the four penguins of the Apocalypse? Has he changed his theme? No, no, I I think they might they might just be penguins of apocalypse. I don't know. I I apparently penguins are kind of assholes.
1: They totally would work for apocalypse, wouldn't they? They'd like, you know, have the dads hold the evil apocalypse eggs on their feet to keep them warm.
0: I don't know, man. Penguins are complicated. Some of them are pretty great. Um I mean they're they're kind of they're great assholes. Like they're they're horrible in in really entertaining ways, but yeah. Um I I'm I'm willing to At least to entertain the notion that the penguins might be on Apocalypse's team.
1: Well, once our heroes land in Antarctica and get to the base of the Order of Witnesses, they find that everyone has been slaughtered. Probably by penguins.
0: Even the younglings? Not the younglings,
1: because a couple of our heroes go to look for any survivors, and behind a hidden wall, they find a bunch of children. And this is exactly what I thought of. It just reminds me of those, like, super innocent, precocious, like, really cute kids who all got slaughtered in Star Wars. But these kids don't get slaughtered. They actually survived, and the heroes do manage to keep them safe. Interestingly, one of these younglings is a little girl named Sanctity. And Madame Sanctity is a character we'll learn about elsewhere in X-Men continuity. She's sort of a rival that goes up against the Ascani, and it'll later turn out that she's actually Tanya Trask, Bolivar Trask's time lost daughter. And she got pulled into the future to be an Ascani, and then she went back in time to implant information about the Twelve into Master Mold. It is so stupidly complicated, and I kind of love it.
0: The point is, if you're going to save a bunch of children from a despot, maybe think twice. This is totally a Star Wars comic, though. Like, it's just straight up doing Star Wars. It
1: is. And just like Star Wars, anything that seems like it might be a trap is totally a trap. Because Nero is here, telepathically cloaked, along with her robotic infinites that Rachel couldn't telepathically detect because they're not human. They're like robots. And they fight the heroes killing Hark, and seriously pissing Rachel off as she attacks Nero.
0: You've taken a friend from me. My father always told me not to let my emotions rule my decisions in battle. Too bad I take after my mother.
1: And there is a big fight, and Nero kicks a lot of ass, even though she can only use one of her stolen powers at a time. Rachel fights her to a standstill, but eventually... Nero uses a very specific power to replace Rachel's blood with liquid gold, which sounds both very painful and, well, like I said, very specific.
0: I mean, given the weird degrees of specificity we've seen in mutant powers over the years, I absolutely accept that.
1: Beats the hell out of the generic 90s energy powers we see all the time. So Rachel is dying, and she keeps having visions of herself morphing from her hound self to her present-day self, her hair growing longer and her hound marks fading, and she realizes again she's exactly where she needs to be, and this is exactly what needs to happen.
0: Well, she also has repeated visions of Nero claiming the Phoenix Force, and after a sequence of these, she suddenly realizes why, and she lets Nero take the Phoenix Force. She specifically uses all of her telepathic
1: and telekinetic might to sever the Phoenix Force from herself. Nero, unsurprisingly, cannot handle it at all. It's overwhelming, it's tearing her apart. It kind of reminds me of what happened to Mastermind during the Dark Phoenix saga, right? As Jean Grey screws up Mastermind's mind and goes Dark Phoenix. Ouch. So, Rachel being more merciful than, say, Dark Phoenix, does then... Remove the phoenix from Nero, letting it go free into the cosmos. And the phoenix force at this point is gone. This is why the mother Ascani just has a tiny little shred of it left in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix when she's much, much older.
0: And with it go Nero's powers. Nero's super
1: pissed off. And so as revenge, she presses a button right at the top of her butt. I mean, seriously, that's, that's where the button is. There's a little hatch and everything. It's, it's very strange and specific. So it's a button? It is a button, you're totally right. And that button summons a butt-leviathan! I mean, it's probably not called that, but maybe it is.
0: It's a big robot monster. Azana and Blacksmith crawl inside the leviathan to shut it down which they do in like a page and a half. And this is the the pacing is weird. And again, I feel like the series really wanted to be four issues cuz this should have been a much longer scene. Um but they they do. They they shut it down and Nero decides that she's going to go ahead and die in the base's explosion rather than having to face apocalypse.
1: So, the good guys have won and most of them are still alive. And later, the Ascani continue to expand. They've got the younglings who are currently maturing into adultlings, and they have the surviving members of Rachel's rad posse, but Rachel doesn't want to be part of this right now. She wants to go off and do her own thing. She doesn't want to be, quote, Mother Ascani, and I love the way she explains it.
0: I wanted to start a revolution, not a religion.
1: Tough break, kid. She hears from her allies that Apocalypse, now that he's in his new body, is totally going to come after the Ascani and totally slaughter them, but she's not worried, because at this point, she's been back and forth in all sorts of directions in the time stream, and she knows what's coming. Namely, her brother, who she's going to help out, and who is going to end Apocalypse. At least for a while.
0: And that, in turn, ends the series.
1: So, yeah, I ended up liking this a lot more than I thought I would, and certainly a lot more than I did when I first read it, and... I don't know if that's some kind of weird podcast Stockholm syndrome, but I think this was kind of a fun miniseries.
0: Yeah, I think most of all, this is a miniseries that has the roots of a lot of really good stuff. Again, it's it's got that sort of pleasingly familiar Star Wars shape to it, which, it again, it really, really, really does. Um, but also... It introduces characters and a team of characters in whom I was very, very quickly very invested. They're interesting, they're fresh and cool in ways that you don't see a lot. You see future teams a lot of the time who are sort of designed to echo past teams or alliances. And these guys feel really new and mostly they feel really, really sort of Rachel-flavored. They feel like a team that she would put together and a team of people who would ally with her.
1: Yeah, agreed. And that's hard to do because Rachel Summers is a hard character to get right. She's a hard character to define personality-wise in an elevator pitch, and especially given, you know, how much her circumstances change. But yeah, at this point in her life, I think part of how we learn who Rachel Summers is is by the company she keeps.
0: And the company she keeps is rad as hell.
1: Speaking of awesome company, hey, listeners, you're awesome company, and you've got questions.
0: Adam Draws X-Men asks on Tumblr. Since the Phoenix Force replaced Jean entirely as opposed to using her body as a host, has it ever been explained why most subsequent appearances show the Phoenix Force requiring a host body? Why did the non-retcon version of the Phoenix Force become the standard one?
1: The Phoenix Force did indeed fully replace Jean Grey, it impersonated her, but when most people think of the Dark Phoenix Saga, they're still mostly thinking about it in its original form, where Jean sacrificed herself on the moon to save her friends. It seems like it only comes up that the Phoenix was sort of a clone of Jean, a copy of Jean, when that continuity is specifically relevant. Because, let's face it, the Dark Phoenix Saga is an incredibly powerful story, and if you try to dissect it too much, I think it can weaken it a little bit. And so there's that. I think there's also the fact that the bond between the Phoenix Force and a human host is continually reinforced. We have Rachel Summers and the Phoenix, then we have Jean meeting up with the Phoenix again in Morrison's run and in the Phoenix Song and Warsong miniseries.
0: We also see in all of those that the Phoenix has come to identify very, very, very closely with and to an extent as Jean. What the Phoenix is is at this point kind of inseparable from Jean Grey. And so I sort of assume, or at least in my head read that as meaning partly, that it seeks human hosts in kind of recognition of or in an attempt to find that.
1: Yeah, especially if we factor in what we learned in Excalibur number 50, where it specifically wanted to bond with a human to understand the galaxy, the universe, through a mortal set of senses. There's also the fact that the X-Men cartoon did indeed have the Phoenix bond with Jean. They didn't go with the whole thing where it replaced her. And I cannot overstate how much of a gateway the X-Men cartoon was for so many people who became X-Men readers. So I suspect for a lot of people, that was their first exposure to what the Phoenix Force
0: was. X-Men readers, but also X-Men writers. It's something that's definitely informed the shape that subsequent canon took.
1: Exactly.
0: So, yeah, I
1: think most of it is just that we have more examples of the Phoenix bonding with a host, even from very early on, than we do of it doing what it did the first time around with Jean Grey. It just became the default through repetition, and like we talked about in a previous question in a previous episode, I think it works better that way. Big cosmic forces are a dime a dozen in the Marvel Universe, whereas something like this is a lot more interesting. Mr. Fish asks on Twitter, What character from a Marvel TV show or movie who's not in the 616 would you like to see in the comics? Sid from Legion is such a good X-Men character.
0: Well, Mr. Fish, Sid is fine, but if we're gonna import anyone from Legion, I want Carrie and Carrie. I love them. I love their weird powers and their weird relationship and shared and distinct identities. Like, I think they're so cool and so interesting and so far outside of anything we've really seen explored in the comics.
1: Yeah, Carrie and Carrie are amazing. Oh, I'm so excited I'm going to be starting Legion Season 3 really soon. I haven't had a chance to. I love that show. Yeah, likewise. If I was going to bring somebody in from Legion, I would actually bring... Potonomy, he doesn't have a direct 616 parallel the way that Sid sort of does. I mean, her powers are kind of like Rogue, and I feel like it would be weird to have both her and Rogue in the same universe. But Potonomy, he focuses specifically on geographically mapping and exploring people's memories. And yes, that's something that we've seen telepaths do in the Marvel Universe a number of times, but I love that that's who Potonomy is, that's what he does, and that also informs his relationship with his own identity and his own memories. I love how focused his powers are, and that could be such a fun way to, like, just showcase different aspects of the characters around him.
0: Yeah, um, I love the specificity of his powers. That's something that I think, specifically, Legion does incredibly well, is limit psionic powers. There's There's a tendency to telepathic power creep very, very intensely in the comics universe over time, And, yeah, I love the strange limitations that exist within Legion. And while this doesn't exactly directly
1: answer the question, because you were talking about characters that don't appear in the comics, I gotta give a shout-out to The Gifted's version of Polaris, and I do appreciate that Polaris in the comics, uh, specifically in X-Men Blue and in Prisoner X, is starting to resemble more and more the version from the TV show. I suppose we could bring in Eclipse from The Gifted, who doesn't exist in the comics, but Honestly, his personality and history and relationships are so specific to that show that I don't think there'd really be any reason to.
0: Yeah, he's not a bad character, but he's a character who is specific to that continuity. You could definitely introduce a version of him in the 616, but it would have to be a very, very different one.
1: We are a fully listener-supported podcast. Certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's hear today from the angry Claremontian narrator.
0: The future lies branching before you, malcontent blizzard. Where will you follow it? Into the darkness, or the still darker darkness? Either way, you will eventually have to step into the light and confront yourself and your destiny to once and for all become the same force, the same individual, the same fate you have fled all this time. Evan. And with that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter.
1: New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at
0: explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode, and be sure to come see us at FlameCon.
1: Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the donate link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
0: Next week, we're taking a much-needed vacation.
1: But check back August 4th, when we'll be putting the funny books on hold... for a trip
0: to the funny pages. I found out, and I should have known this, that the, the interval that most sirens, um, that most siren tones are is a diminished fifth. Huh. Because it sounds so jarring.
1: It, fair enough, yeah. This
0: is also known as the Devil's Interval.
1: Whoa. Okay, that sounds way more yeah, badass. Yeah, for real.
0: Isn't that awesome?
1: That is awesome. Devil's Interval, whoa.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so that's why um, in the Sinsen's Dance Macabre, the um, obligato violin soloist tunes their E string down half a step, so they've got um, a diminished fifth instead of a full fifth between the two highest strings. Whoa. Evil orchestras. I love it. Well, evil soloist.
1: Evil soloist who's part of an evil orchestra. But yeah.